Morning, everybody. I think it's significant as we study the Psalms that the only way you can experience the, what it means to have Jesus hide your soul in the cleft of the rock is to go through rough times, right? So the question is not are we willing to have that deeper experience with Jesus, that deeper relationship with Jesus, because all of us do, but are we willing to go through the difficult times that will bring about that deeper relationship? Like most of you, I've been blessed with Brother Sisk these past couple days. Looking at him, I, I can't but think of a book that was written some years ago by a theologian called Don't Waste Your Life. And in that book, he gives an example of this couple that worked hard and was able to retire in their 50s and spent the rest of their life basically, that when interviewed, they asked, what are you going to do the rest of your life? And they basically said, sit on the beach and collect seashells. And this particular theologian asked, you know, how pathetic it would be to show up at the judgment seat of Christ and to answer for the, your last couple decades and just say, see, Jesus, look at all my seashell collection. Right. I think Brother Sisk exemplifies what we should all want to be. If we reach that old, if we reach that age, what we should all want to be, continuous service. I'm, wow, if, if I can preach at that level when I'm still 85, if I can teach at that level and still get a few laughs when I'm at 85, wow, that would just be incredible. So, I mean, what, what you saw the past couple days was something very significant, so please treasure that. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1. Philippians 1. I get a whole year to uh, pick and choose what I want to preach on and to pray about it. Generally speaking, I'm fairly solid. I have a general, generally clear direction. However, with this sermon, I was really struggling. There were a couple possibilities I was praying about. And then one day, just driving, listening to VCBY, Adrian Rogers was preaching, who's one of the better Baptist preachers, I think, of the past 50 years. And he made the comment that he preaches what speaks to him. And that really narrowed down the choices for me. So I'm preaching today a sermon that speaks to myself and hopefully to you all as well. I have a question for you, and the question is not a trick question. So please, I'm not with this question trying to figure out who has too much time on their hands and who needs more homework, okay? How many of you have ever daydreamed of ministry? You've daydreamed a minute. You don't think we has done. Okay, most of you, right? I have daydreamed about ministry. Now, being, being a guy, I also daydream about being with the Navy SEALs and intercepting a pass from Tom Brady and all those other things, right? And sometimes those are combined, okay? Sometimes, believe it or not, those can even be combined with a daydream about ministry. Now, such is the imagination. Now, it's not inherently wrong to visualize your preaching, your ministry, how you're going to teach in Sunday school, and so forth. That in of itself is not inherently wrong. The question I want to ask, though, is do our daydreams, which, by the way, could be a sign you have too much time on your hands, so I'm not discounting that, but do your daydreams, do your visions for the future, do they center around yourself? And I speak to myself here, when I visualize my ministry, do I visualize the accolades that come as a result of it? Do I visualize what other people think about it? Do I care what other people are saying? Is my perception of my ministry directly related to what other th people think of me or how other people act in regards to me? I think in many ways the answer is yes, in many subtle ways. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 21. But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren of the Lord, wax, waxing confident by my bonds, and much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. Some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Christ, Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation, I hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please bless us audience, Lord, thank you for the BCM students. Thank you for their tender hearts, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to preach here. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the sermon that you've laid on my heart, Lord. I pray that I would be clear in expressing what the Apostle Paul is expressing here and also in applying it. In Jesus' name, amen. In our BCM library, we have five books by a man named George Eldon Ladd. George Eldon Ladd is considered to be one of the greatest conservative theologians of the past 50 years. In fact, church historian Mark Knoll once did a survey of three evangelical, conservative evangelical academic organizations. And the question was, who had the most impact on your scholarly life? Who had the most impact on your scholarship? Two out of three of those organizations listed George Eldon Ladd in the top two. Of those five books in our library, I want to tell you a story about one of them. That book is called, and it's in our library, Jesus and the Kingdom, the Eschatology of Biblical Realism. If that makes your eyes glaze over, then join the club. Okay? It's not necessarily a book recommended for undergrad, but it is in our library. This book, in the early 1960s, George Eldon Ladd had a vision. He wanted to be the bridge between conservative scholarship and liberal scholarship. He had a PhD from Harvard or Yale, you know, someplace really fancy. He wanted this book to show that conservative evangelicals who could have a quote-unquote place at the table with liberals, that they could dialogue, that we could share ideas. And by the way, maybe I'll just get an opportunity to witness uh, uh, you know, along, along the way somehow. To that end, he wrote Jesus and the Kingdom, and it got published by a secular publisher, HarperCollins, the first edition. His dreams were all bound up in that book. His biographer, John D. Elia, in his recent biography, makes a statement. With the book's acceptance by HarperCollins, Ladd had done what no other Fuller scholar could manage, publish a critical study on a purely biblical topic with a publishing house outside the evangelical mainstream. Ladd expected a new chapter in his career to begin with, one that showed him to be accepted in the broader world of academic discourse. Gone were the petty battles with fundamentalists. Ladd was at the big table now. The process had been long and, and difficult. The results would be devastating. Significantly, George Eldon Ladd had a very difficult childhood with a, a very difficult situation in the home, and that may have contributed to this, because ultimately everything he wanted to be was bound up in how this book would be received. A year later, 1965, New Testament scholar Norman Perrin gave a review of the book in the Journal of Interpretation, major, major journal. Norman Perrin was very caustic. It was one of the more negative reviews you will see. He criticized Ladd extensively. He accused Ladd of basically tampering with the evidence, of only citing the scholars where they seemed to agree with him and not giving due diligence to them when they disagreed with him and all sorts of stuff. This absolutely devastated George Ladd. This began a spiral into depression because of this one review. And it wasn't the only review. There were other good reviews. I read a review in the journal Biblica, which was actually positive. But because of this one negative review, Ladd's academic career, as far as he was concerned, it was almost at an end. Furthermore, his relationship with his wife and his relationship with his children suffered immensely. One of his children was disabled, both mentally and physically, 
and never had the proper relationship with his father that he should have. Eliad writes that, uh, that he, let's see, rather than enjoying his place in the broader discussion of biblical scholarship and theology, Lad found himself shut up out of that world, barely tolerated by those to whom he desperately wanted to be considered an equal. By this time, he was also significantly estranged from his family. He had gambled those relationships on his hope of earning his place at the table with the giants of theological scholarship. That review plunged Ladd into depression, as noted. Now, before we turn up our nose at George Eldon Ladd, I think we can all agree that that, that's pretty pathetic for one book review to essentially shatter you spiritually and mentally. But before we turn up our nose at George Eldon Ladd, I do want to make a point about us fundamentalists. I believe that just by virtue of being a fundamentalist, there are some sins that we are better protected from. So you will never see a fundamentalist come even close to denying the doctrine of inerrancy. Okay? There's a whole lot of steps that would have to happen before he could even get to the point where you even think about denying the doctrine of inerrancy. The flip side is sometimes, sometimes we slander those that might disagree with us on a particular issue of Bible versions and so forth, but at least we won't even come close to denying inerrancy. We won't even come close to drunkenness at least in theory, because we flee social drinking like, drinking like a vegan would flee Outback Steakhouse. So we don't even come close to that. Okay? And yet, there is one sin that has hampered fundamentalism just as much as has hampered broader evangelicalism, and that is the sin of a self-centered ministry. Fundamentalism has had its personality cults. Fundamentalism has had its wars between major preachers and their followings, a measuring of one's ministry by the accolades of others. Fundamentalism, just like broader evangelicalism, has had its people going around saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and then the ultra-pious, I am of Christ. I have within my files on my computer a, a PDF picture of a flyer that was distributed some decades ago in preparation for a revival meeting. The flyer has on it three, a picture of three preachers, one of them the, a major, uh, the pastor of a major Baptist church, huge Baptist church, also his son, and also the bus captain, who it is advertised had the largest bus route in the world. At the top of that flyer, this is what it says, citywide campaign with the world's greatest men. My father once preached in the church of which these men were a part. He preached for the head pastor there. And after my father preached and sat down, the head pastor got up, looked at my father in front of everyone on the stage and said, now you're going to hear some real preaching. And yet, in all honesty, do, do we not struggle with the same thing? Do we not struggle with the idea that, well, they're doing pretty good, but I can do better? Do we not struggle with the idea of, well, how come they're getting praise when I deserve all this praise? Do we not struggle with the idea of, I wonder how people think of me? This is precisely the situation that is confronting the Apostle Paul because he is down and out in a Roman jail and there are people taking advantage of that fact, seeking to add to his bonds. What is his attitude? That's what we want to focus on. First, a little background. The Apostle Paul is in prison. It's most likely a Roman prison. The Philippians have supported Paul in the midst of his incarceration. We see that in chapter 4. Ultimately, Philippians is probably one of the most positively oriented epistles in the entire New Testament. He doesn't have to yell at them like he does in Galatians to the Galatians. Despite external circumstances, despite, despite his time in jail in, in a Roman prison, the Apostle Paul has an overwhelmingly positive attitude that everything is working out for the glory of Jesus Christ. Our first point that we see in the Apostle Paul's statement in these verses is a note of assurance. Notice verse 12. He wants them to understand that things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather for the furtherance of the gospel. And he brings, he gives this word of assurance in a couple ways. He focuses, first of all, in verse 13, my bonds in Christ are manifest. 
Paul makes the point that this is no ordinary incarceration. His bonds are in Christ. Now, from the perspective of the Roman government, at least initially, the Apostle Paul is there in prison over a matter of religio licta, or approved religion, i.e., whether or not Christianity should be considered a part of Judaism, whether or not it should be considered its own religion and harmless, or whether or not it's too much trouble, whether or not it would actually be a threat to the Roman Empire. From the Apostle Paul's perspective, however, it is not about religion at all. It was about one man, Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 17 he says that he is set for a defense, apologia, a formal defense of the gospel. He is ready for it because it's not about him. It's about Jesus Christ. Another way he assures his audience that he, uh, another way he gives a word of assurance is by notice, noting the extent of the visibility of his bonds. He says, my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. Now that word palace, that is not a place. The Greek there is praetorium. This is the elite praetorium guard that was standing over the Apostle Paul in four-hour shifts. They were getting an earful from him. The Apostle Paul is the man most qualified on earth at this point to bridge to the gospel with a pagan Gentile. They are getting an earful from him. As a result of the Apostle Paul's imprisonment, the gospel is going forth because these soldiers, they're going to be hanging out. They're going to go to the pub. They're going to, they're going to be talking to their, to their family about this weird guy, the Apostle Paul, who apparently he's only in prison for the sake of this man called Jesus Christ that was once crucified. So, as Gordon Fee writes, to the world, Caesar may be Lord, but to Paul and to the believers in Philippi, only Jesus is Lord, and his lordship over Caesar is already making itself felt through the penetration of the gospel into the heart of the Roman political life. Now, significantly here, Paul is focused primarily on the extent of the gospel going forth, not so much on, on the conversion of specific soldiers, though no doubt many were getting saved at this point. It is the Apostle Paul, after all. But he is focusing on simply the gospel going out. He is not at this point establishing a means of comparing himself to others. He talks about the, uh, not only the entire palace or the entire praetorium card, but in all other places. Rumors are going out. Rome is being hit with the rumor mill, with, with the rumors of this man, the Apostle Paul. Everyone loves a good gossip, right? Paul gives a third reason for, uh, for assurance. He notes that many of my brother in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word. We've all noticed how it's easier to be a witness when someone else is with you, right? My, my rate of giving out tracts is much higher when I'm actually with someone, <laughs> especially working with the teens. I have to try and set a good example for the teens. That's hardly the best motive for giving, a, giving out a good tract, but hey, whatever. At least I'm getting out more tracts that way. Okay? When we're around people that witness, we tend to witness more, right? The Apostle Paul's witness in prison is energizing those outside of prison. So first of all, Paul has a word of assurance. But secondly, Paul has, uh, secondly, look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is that word some. What is the context? That some, what are they a part of? They're not a part of some heretical sect. They're not a part of, for example, the Judaizers that Paul opposes so vigorously in, in Galatians. They are a part of that which in verse 14, Paul has already talked about, many of the brethren who are preaching the word without fear. Here then, after giving a word of assurance, Paul gives a word of irrelevance, as we'll see, or in good colloquial English, so what? The Apostle Paul is no stranger to those within the Orthodox Church, within the within the true church that would oppose his work. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 10.10 10 says, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. 
Is that the kind of thing you'd say about your pastor? I hope not. Is that the kind of thing you'd say about your best friend? I hope not. Right. He is more than used to being opposed by people. 1 Corinthians 1. Some are saying, I am of Paul, but some are saying, I am of a Peter, I am of Apollos. You have factions within the church. He's very aware of that. So here the Apostle Paul acknowledges that there are two types of people, two types of people that are preaching the word. Some, on the one hand, are preaching it out of love, they're his allies, but others are preaching it out of dissension and factions and strife. And yet they are preaching the gospel, but full of envy and strife. This is the language of sectarianism. This is the language of a jealous spirit that seeks to do better than a rival. Fee once again puts it this way, out of envy toward Paul, perhaps with a kind of unsavory delight that enjoys kicking an opponent who is down, they now view Paul's imprisonment perhaps as evidence of God's judgment, but also as their chance to preach Christ correctly. One scholar, one New Testament scholar has suggested that these particular opponents of Paul they thought that if, you sh if you're preaching the awesome, resurrected, exalted Christ, you yourself, you yourself should be awesome, exalted, and so forth. And that hardly fits the profile of a Jew in prison whose his speech is contemptible. In other words, this was their opportunity to look at everybody in the church and say, ha, now that the Apostle Paul is in prison, now you're going to hear some real preaching. Now you're going to learn to have your best life now. On the one hand, it is incredible that such a group could exist. What's even more incredible, however, in my opinion, is the Apostle Paul's response to that group. Because he does not say, those bunch of losers, they'll see, uh, they'll see how tough it is to do ministry without me. He does not say, those bunch of losers, they'll, they're going to run up against a stone wall. Or those bunch of losers, they're going to, see, uh, they're going to suffer for that. Now look at verse 17. Uh, verse 18. What then? Tisgar, in colloquial English, so what? Let that sink in for a second, please. The Apostle Paul, for the Apostle Paul, neither his circumstances, nor what other people were saying about him, nor how other people were treating him while he was in jail mattered, ultimately. All that mattered was the progression of the gospel. He's okay with there being other factions. Not that he likes it, but he can handle there being other factions. He can handle people slandering him. He can handle people preaching in such a way that would diminish his ministry as long as Christ is proclaimed. That, to him, was the overriding point. This leads to the Apostle Paul's third point, a word of joyful expectation, specifically his ultimate vindication. He is joyfully expecting that despite what happens now, it will all turn out okay in the end. Verse 19, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, being good BCM students, I, I, you realize that this is not referred to him earning his salvation through his jail, far from it. But neither does this refer to him simply being rescued from jail. Rather, here, as in other places of Scripture, the key to understanding what's going on is to understand what passage of Scripture of the Old Testament Paul is quoting from. Septuagint, Job 13, 16, verbatim. Okay, five words that perfectly match Septuagint Job here. The Apostle Paul is quoting Job. Why? Because in the context of Job 13, Job is all about ultimate vindication before God. Not vindication now. Job certainly wasn't getting vindication now. Not with his friends, not with his wife, with no one. Yet Job trusted that ultimately he would stand before God and be able to give account of himself. So the Apostle Paul takes that word from Job and applies it to himself and says, I don't care what is going on right now. I don't care what they're saying. I don't care what they're doing. I don't care how my ministry stacks up to them. It doesn't matter because I will be vindicated in the eyes of God at the judgment seat of Christ. He was willing to wait for his vindication, in other words. 
He was willing to wait for the truth to come out. He was willing to wait for the naysayers, for his opponents to be silenced. In other words, in a nutshell, the validity of Paul's ministry does not depend on what other people are saying about him. It does not depend upon what other people think about him and does not depend upon whether or not other people are opposing him. The validity of the Apostle Paul's ministry here lies in the progress of the gospel and in his hope of future vindication by Jesus Christ. Now, with those three points, so a word of assurance, a word of irrelevance, i.e. so what, and a, a word of future vindication, a word of hope, I want to take that middle point and really unpack it practically today. About a week ago, I received an email from the website academia.edu, with which I have an account, a free account. And it's an interesting website. A lot of major scholars will post their work on academia.edu. I'm not sure if they technically do so legally or not, but sometimes they'll post papers that, that you know, publish papers or even papers that haven't been published. So it's a great resource. It's not a perfect resource because a bunch of wannabe scholars will also post their stuff on there. In theory, you could post your paper on academia.edu. Please don't. Okay? You have not yet earned the right to post your stuff online. Okay? Um, so it's not a perfect resource. However, I got an email from them saying the name Paul Himes has been mentioned by a paper by, by a paper at this German school, and then they named the German school. However, there's a catch. I need to upgrade for $100 a year to see if the name Paul Himes is actually mentioned. <laughs> In other words, for $100 a year, I can check to see if it's me being mentioned or someone else being mentioned, because there are a lot of Paul Himeses out there, okay? especially in Germany. Okay? Or, and not only that, to see if I mention positively or negatively for $100 a year. Now, what is surprising is not that this would cost $100 a year. What is surprising is, in all honesty, how much I was tempted by that. Now, ultimately, I, I did not spend $100. I can't justify that. I, I might be able to justify that on coffee because coffee helps me interpret scripture better, in my opinion. But <laughs> at least that's my justification. <laughs> But I did not sign up for the extra $100. But uh, in all honesty, for a brief moment, it was a serious temptation. And that bothers me. Because why should it matter whether or not somebody in Germany, why should it be worth 100 bucks at least, whether or not someone in Germany mentioned the name Paul Himes and whether or not that was this Paul Himes or some other Paul Himes? There are moments in my flesh where it matters to me way too much if someone mentions me, what people say about me. There are moments in my daydreams. Now, some of you may have daydreams about standing in front of a crowd of 500, preaching a gospel, seeing, a seeing 50 people got saved. My daydreams generally revolve around being mentioned in a footnote by D.A. Carson or some other New Testament scholar, which is pretty pathetic. I acknowledge that's pretty pathetic. I mean, that daydream does not involve the Navy SEALs. It does not involve intercepting a pass from Tom Brady. It does not involve sacking Aaron Rodgers or anything like that. It's, it's honestly pretty pathetic as a daydream, but it's the truth. To my shame, it's the truth. So the question is, as we've seen from the Apostle Paul, how much does it matter? How much does it matter what other people say, what other people think? As far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, the success of others, what others are saying about him, how others are relating to him is ultimately irrelevant to the progress of the gospel. He did not compare himself with others for the sake of ministry. He did not get sour grapes when they said things, when they had success and said things about him that they shouldn't have because he was in prison. The Apostle Paul also is not even focused necessarily on what he is doing in prison in comparison to them, all, as far as right of success and all that. All that matters is that the gospel is going out. So I want to bring out an extended application in light of all this. 
with three major points. First of all, so three, three temptations based on what the Apostle Paul is going through here and how he, is, how he is interacting with those outside of prison. First of all, there is the temptation that George Eldon Ladd succumbed to, the temptation that I will so value what other people say that I will get, either get a positive high from it or it will spiral me into depression. This is the kind of attitude that declares to the world, what do you think of me? How am I doing? This is the attitude that gets depressed at criticism and gets an emotional high from compliments. Now, I'm, for a couple minutes, I'm going to rip on Facebook, okay, um, which I think I'll have a receptive audience here. But before I do, we do need to clarify. We do need to add a caveat. Not, social media is not inherently evil. Okay, we understand that. Uh, good things can happen through social media. Prayer, requir- prayer requests can be shared once time. Just one time in my entire life, I've gotten to witness to someone on social media. Uh, but that quickly switched to a more of an email conversation. As, as was more appropriate. One time in my life that happened. Uh, generally speaking, for every minute of something good that occurs on social media, there's five minutes of, of cat videos and five minutes of calling each other Nazis over politics, right? So you can do the math as to how much profit goes on there. However, when I came to BCM, when I first came here to BCM, I made a decision to stay, step way back from my involvement in Facebook. And when I did so, I found something interesting. Now being able to take more of an objective view, a bird's eye view of my involvement there, I noticed just how banal and self-centered my posts were. I mean, think about it. What's the point of going on Facebook? To post something that other people will read, right? So you get on Facebook and you post, I just had a cappuccino, yum! As if the world cares or should care, right? And you expect all of your 500 pseudo friends to actually read that? because they have nothing better to do, perhaps? Now, there are exceptions, okay? If all, you, if all somebody did on Facebook was post great quotes from John R. Rice, okay, that's different, okay? But overall, overall, we are incredibly self-centered and banal with what we do. Is it not true? A humor writer once put it this way. To achieve the effect of Facebook 50 years ago, here's what you would have had to do. You would have had to, have, you would have had to go out to the post office and buy 500 postcards. You would go home and individually stamp those postcards and individually write the same message on each one, such as, I like kittens, who's with me? And you would write that on there, or I just got my haircut that I've been wanting to get. And you would send that out to 500 different friends. And not only would you send it out to them, you would expect them to interact with that and tell you how awesome a statement it was, and hopefully share it with other people. Now, 50 years ago, that would not have been called social networking. That would have been called an ego the size of Texas. And yet, is that not sometimes how we do ministry? Even those of us who don't use social media so much, right? Even those who aren't involved with Facebook. Is that not how we do ministry? I wonder if everyone notices the work I put into that. I wonder if the dorm knows how much I've been praying lately. I hope everyone recognizes all that I'm doing. Fasting is a good example of this. We should fast. We should fast. But do you casually mention it at lunch, right? Oh, sorry, I can't eat with you guys. I'm fasting, right? As a test, let me ask you this. If you were going door to door with, with your partner and you led someone to the Lord and your partner got credit for it, would that bother you? If the general perception among your peers was that everyone else in your room was super spiritual and you weren't, even though you were witnessing more than them, even though you were praying more than them, even though you were meditating more on God's word, if the general perception out there was that you're second class to everyone else, would that bother you? 
The Apostle Paul's answer in both cases would have been, who cares, at least the gospel is getting out. From another angle, men, imagine that 10 years from now you are an assistant pastor. You do all the work in the church. And yet, and yet your head pastor gets all the credit. Church attendance is up by 50% because you personally have knocked on every single door. You personally pray twice what your head pastor does. And yet he gets all the credit. The church is expanding. The church is booming. The blogosphere praises him. Frontline Magazine gives him an interview in which he never even mentions you once. Are you okay with that? Ladies, 10 years from now, you're married to a pastor. He struggles spiritually. You do most of the prayer. You pray extra. You pass out more tracts. You let him know who's hurting in the church because he's totally clueless. You help him on his sermons because you did better in Greek and hermeneutics, and you would have done better in homiletics if Pastor Swanson had let you take the class. <laughs> and yet he gets all the credit. He never once mentions you from the pulpit. You helped him craft that sermon, and he's getting accolades from it afterwards, and you don't get any. Would you be okay with that? So the first temptation we face is just the temptation to make what other people say about us, what other people think about us, the basis of our ministry. The second temptation that we face is the temptation of factionism, i.e. becoming various groups and so forth. This is the attitude of the Apostle Paul's opponents. Now that he's in jail, it's time to expand our influence. This is, the attitude of the, that, this is the attitude that says, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Peter, I am of the Rice crowd, I am of the Sword crowd, I am of the Hiles crowd, and if we're not careful, I am of the BCM crowd. Okay? It's us versus them. Paul's solution to that in 1 Corinthians 1 was to focus on the foolishness of the cross. Paul's solution to that in Philippians 1, in Philippians 1 is to focus on magnifying Christ as well, and the two go hand in hand. Here's the test then. Number one, are we focused on expanding our influence? Now, to a certain degree, you want to make connections, okay? When, when pastors come here for the Victory Conference, here's a tip, guys. Make their acquaintance. Go out of the way to make the acquaintance of pastors because you never know. Someday he might have you in as an evangelist or something. So, okay? so that's fine. But are you focused on expanding your circle of influence? Do you want people to follow your example just because you're you? Do you want people to follow your example because you're the preacher, the pastor here, and, and unlike that guy over there with his crowd, we're the crowd over here that's doing it right? Is that what our focus is on? Furthermore, is your loyalty to someone else other than Jesus Christ? On the flip side of that, are you determined to expand someone else's influence because they're the man and you're going to follow them no matter what? Our loyalty should never be given to anybody other than Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul actually makes a big deal in 1 Corinthians about not having baptized anyone. Because people were using, hardly anyone, because people were using baptism as sort of an excuse to wear a label. Oh, Paul, uh, Peter baptized me, Apollos baptized me, who'd you get baptized, Bubba Joe? Oh, well, sorry, okay. Maybe someday he'll be a great preacher. The Apostle Paul said, I made it a point really not to baptize too many people. The Apostle Paul's overarching mentality was Christ must increase and I must decrease, just like John the Baptist. Sometimes, if we're not careful, our overarching mentality will be I must increase my sphere of influence so that Christ must increase. Are we willing to forsake the possibility of having a following? Here's the question. Are we willing to become a nobody? Are you willing to become a nobody while all your roommates become household names in fundamentalism? Are you willing to be off in the corner of the globe somewhere wasting away in a jail even perhaps while all your, all your roommates have mega churches and get their names featured in Soar the Lord and so forth. Are you willing to do that if so long 
as the gospel is going forth. If that means that the gospel is progressing in the dark corners of the earth, are you willing to take that choice, to make that choice? Thirdly, there is a temptation to measure our success against others. How am I doing compared to them? The Apostle Paul was not concerned about how his performance stacked up against those outside. Significantly, although I have no doubt that through the Apostle Paul's influence, praetorium guards were getting saved, significantly, he doesn't even mention that. He doesn't compare himself to them. Now, occasionally, Paul does mention when someone gets saved. So it's not like that's a bad thing, obviously, right? And by, by doing so, you can encourage others. So that's not what I'm knocking here. But what I am saying is that the Apostle Paul is not cutting notches in his belt to compare himself with those guys out there. He never says, well, they're pretty pathetic because they only won 10 souls to the Lord and I won 20, right? He never does that. Which means, as we've talked here from the pulpit quite often, we do not judge a more contemporary church's success by the number of people that are getting saved. Okay? Billy Graham won more souls than probably all of you combined, and yet it had a serious impact on the next generation as far as the effectiveness of the gospel. So the measure of success here is not my, what I personally have done. All of that is irrelevant, ultimately, so long as the gospel is going forth. Now, we do need to make one thing clear. Once again, a, a caveat, God does not bless spiritual laziness, right, and spiritual sloppiness. God does, and God has no room for a defeatist attitude, which just says, I'm going to plug away and hope things happen, right? And we're not Calvinists who think that God foreordains when you'll win a soul and when you'll win a soul and that you personally have nothing to do with it. However, there is a tendency among us sometimes to measure our success against others and determine our spirituality through that. After my father had surrendered to go to Japan, had surrendered to go to the mission field, a, a well-meaning and, and very wise great soul winner came up to him and said, why are you going to Japan when you can win more souls to God in America? And what he said, I believe, was absolutely true in that if God had called dad to America, he probably would have won more souls than if God had called him to Japan. And yet, if God had not called dad to Japan, then there are souls there that wouldn't have heard the gospel. Who would have led Usugi-san to the Lord, the Yakuza, the mafia member? Who would have led others to the Lord that my father saw saved? In other words, is one, diff one soul in a difficult place like Japan worth five souls in America? Well, the question is irrelevant. Because the question is ultimately, is the gospel getting out through your work? If the gospel is getting out, there will be fruit. God guarantees it. However, this is significant because some of us sometimes simply look at the numbers, and if we can't get the numbers, we as we're assuming that we're failing. Now, that is often the case, right? If, if there is a soul primed, primed by the Holy Spirit to be saved, and two people go out on evangelism that day, one of them actually cares and weeps over souls, and the other does not, and is just going through the motions, then guess who gets to win that soul to the Lord, right? God's going to give it to the one that actually cares. And so often, this is our problem. I speak to myself here. We don't weep over souls. We don't actually care. And yet, having said that, simply because you are not seeing the success of your peers is not the measure of your ministry. Jesus himself, significantly in Matthew, Matthew 13, 58 says that in Jesus' home region, he did not do many mighty works there. Uk, uk, upoyesin. Mark 6, 5, incredibly, and I have trouble wrapping my head around this. Mark 6, 5 says he was not able to do any mighty works there. Uk, edunatol. We Baptists sometimes like to have a canon in the canon where there are certain passages we focus on so much. And we know that all scripture is inspired, but there are some passages we focus on so much and some passages we rarely ever touch. And I believe one of those is the second half of Isaiah 6. 
We claim the first half, hear my Lord, send me. We don't claim the second half, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Compare Isaiah to Jonah. If Isaiah and Jonah had been contemporaries, and Isaiah had been comparing his ministry to Jonah, how would he have felt? I mean, Jonah is incredible. He's He's got a bitter heart, and he's going through Nineveh. I don't think he's really pleading with them and crying with them the way John or Rice or someone would have. He's basically saying, you know, a few more days and you're going to die. A few more days and you're going to die. I see ya. And that's the extent of his message. And yet, somehow, incredibly, the Spirit works, and works within, within Nineveh, and people get saved. And yet, if we compare Isaiah to Jonah, which one looks successful on the, out, on the outward side? Okay. And yet, long term, which one was more successful? Uh, Jeff Coleman actually pointed out, out to me once that Isaiah's fruit is actually Ezra and Nehemiah, when you think about it, that return from exile. So the, the point being that when you run up against the brick wall, when you are struggling to produce the results that some of others, uh, that some others are, obviously there is a time to, to examine your own heart, but at the same time, we constantly tell you from this pulpit not to be introspective, not to be looking for issues when they are, when they are not there. Significantly, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, when they were confronted with obstacles and hard hearts, their immediate response was not to compare themselves with others. Well, they're doing better, so what's wrong with me? And their immediate response was not to look inside themselves. Their immediate response, whether it be Jesus or the Apostle Paul or Peter, was either anger or weeping, and generally speaking, both together. So this is my concern. I believe it's very possible that God may want to call someone here to a more difficult mission field, but you're not ready, and here's why. You're measuring your success against others. And when you go to that more difficult mission field, you will see fruit. God guarantees it, okay? Japan is one of the hardest nations in the world to to reach, and yet my parents saw fruit there. So you will see fruit. God guarantees it. But you will try and measure the amount of fruit by that which someone else is getting. And that's not something you should be doing. Because when you do that, you will sink into depression. Are you willing to stop measuring yourself against someone else? Are you willing to say, as long as I am getting the gospel out with a pure heart and pure motives and with faith, I'll leave the results up to God? Are you willing to listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit that says, You may water, and someone else else may plant, and you may water, but God gives the increase. Those three points are really my challenge for you tonight as, as we meditate, this morning as we meditate on this. The Apostle Paul, in a situation in a Roman prison where other people were taking advantage of his being in prison, where other people were proclaiming the gospel boldly and yet opposing him at the same time, he didn't care. Because the measure of his ministry was not what other people were saying about him. That measure of his ministry was not which factions were gaining influence. The measure of his ministry was not how he compared with those that were out there right now. The measure of his ministry was the glorification of Jesus Christ and the progress of the gospel. Please bow your heads and close your eyes. We'll have the piano playing in a minute. I just want to challenge you on a couple things.